Reacting to the world's best science. The Naked Scientist Newsflash. Hello, welcome to the Naked Scientist Newsflash with me, Ben Valsler. This week, Helen Scales, Dave Ansell and Chris Smith will be bringing us the latest in science news. Coming up, how a plant that doesn't rely on sunlight for energy has the luxury to indulge in camouflage. Freed from the constraints of photosynthesis, this particular plant has options open to it of different colours to cover up and protect these purple flowers and stems that they have. And they do that by covering them in brown bracts. And these, it turns out, seem to really resemble dead brown leaf litter. How a new power plant uses osmosis to generate electricity. The idea is to put seawater on one side of the membrane and fresh water from a lake on the other. Water will then flow through the membrane, increasing the pressure on the seawater side. You can then use this high-pressure water to drive a water turbine and generate electricity. And a new way to flush out the genes that pathogens need to invade our cells. The virus that they infected the cell with in the first instance must have deactivated some of the genes in that cell which are necessary for that pathogen to infect and damage the cell. So all they have to do is to look in those cells to see which genes it's turned off. And once they've identified those genes, they can work out what those genes do and therefore how those genes help the pathogen to invade the cell. Plus, how feeling a puff of wind on your skin can alter your perception of the words you're hearing. And we look back to this week in science history and the first meeting of the Royal Society. That's all on the way. Now, the animal kingdom, as we know, is full of species that do their very best to hide from predators by adopting all sorts of clever camouflage to help them blend into their surroundings and not get spotted. Well, now it seems that plants might do something similar. Many plants are very brightly coloured to attract pollinators and to make themselves very obvious, and many of them take on the colour of the chlorophyll pigments that they use to generate energy by the process of photosynthesis. Well, Matthew Kluster from Harvard University in the US and his colleagues have been studying an unusual plant called Monotropsis odorata, and that doesn't have any chlorophyll at all, because it gets all the food it needs from the mycorrhiza fungus, tiny fungus that live in the soil and in a really close association with their roots. So it doesn't actually need the leaves in order to make any food? No, it doesn't. It's sort of abandoned that planty way of life, the way it's sort of the thing that we really usually associate with plants. It doesn't do that anymore. Wow, so what's in it for the fungus? Well, oh, the fungus gets... It's, it's a very close, it's a sort of symbiotic relationship. They both benefit from it. Um, the fungus will, uh, will, will get some, to some extent, it'll get some of the nutrients from them. But actually, no, the fungus actually gets a protective place to live. That's the, that's the point for the fungus. It's, it's nice and safe inside and, and associated with the roots of these um, plants, and the plants get all um, get all the nutrients that they need. Um, but having been sort of freed from the constraints of photosynthesis, this particular plant has um, basically options open to it of different colours um, to suit its needs compared to other plants. And as Kluster and the team have discovered, it seems that Monotropsis odorata does its does the best job it can of actually hiding from herbivores that might come along and give it a good munching. And um, but they're trying to do mostly is to cover up and protect these purple flowers and stems that they have and they do that by covering them in brown bracts and these it turns out seem to really resemble dead 
brown leaf litter. And we know this because the team went out and they basically took these bracts and they looked at the colours of um, light that are being reflected back off them and it showed that they were really very similar to the same to the colours that come off leaf litter. So they looked the same. And then they also did some experiments. They rather cleverly went out and took some of the bracts off some plants in the wild. And then over two years they studied um, how much herbivore damage was done to the plants with and without these brown bracts. And then they also they, they found that um, there was 20% less damage in the plants that had this brown covering and um, the ones that had the covering compared to the ones that had them taken off produced much more fruit and that's a really good indication that having that camouflage is really producing a benefit to those uh, to those plants um, so, you know, that's a real practical thing that they're, they're getting a benefit from. Now, the very strange thing is here um, that these plants don't want to disappear entirely because they are still reliant on animals to come and visit them to disperse their pollen and their seeds. And Clooster and the team saw lots of bumblebees actually coming to the flowers and successfully finding them. And, and um, they think they may have been lured in by a nice smell, by a scent that attracts um, just um, pollinators but not herbivores. But that's an idea that we don't really know about yet and these need looking at in a future study. But uh, it does seem that cunning camouflage is no longer a unique characteristic of animals but plants can do it too it's amazing to think that you can have a plant which doesn't actually need the sun and it gets all its energy from a fungus and puts those resources which it doesn't need otherwise into camouflaging itself Fantastic, incredible yeah. dave thanks now a process which is vital for plants and all other living things is called osmosis it's based on something called a partially permeable membrane which lets water through but not salts and other dissolved things so if you put salty water on one side and fresh water on the other water will move from the freshwater side to the salty one. Um, there's lots of processes in living cells um, were driven by this, and it's a reason why soaking lettuce in water will make it swell and get crisper. Now, a Norwegian power company called Statkraft has utilised this effect to build the first power station based on osmosis. The idea is to put seawater on one side of the membrane and fresh water from a lake on the other. Water will then flow through the membrane, increasing the pressure on the seawater side. You can then use this high-pressure water to drive a water turbine and generate electricity. They need about 2,000 square metres of membrane um, to generate about 2 to 4 kilowatts of energy, which is a fairly small power station, but it's a start. Um, and there's lots of other challenges involving um, optimising the membrane so they don't get ruined by impurities in the water and um, stopping the fish swimming in and cut, eating their way through the membrane and things. So basically, you get seawater and you mix fresh water with it, and because the fresh water goes across that membrane into the salt water and makes the salt water swell up, that creates a higher pressure there, and that's what drives the turbine. Yeah, then you just run it through a turbine, and you can and you get power out of it. How much? They um, you reckon you need a you need a lot of water to generate a reasonable amount of energy, but they reckon they could generate about ten percent of Norway's energy by osmosis. But Norway is a country with a lot of lakes. It's one of the, lots of these small um, alternative energy things which can generate a few percent here and there. But if you get enough of them, it'll add up to something useful. It sounds fantastic, and I'm really excited when you get these ideas for other um, technologies develop to to produce energy. But I think the, the fish thing is really quite important because it's an issue in power stations anyway. Is that when you're bringing in water for cooling and sort of fish and all sorts come with it, um, there is quite a lot of um, of mortality and death <laughs> that you don't want, and it's a problem. So that's something to bear in mind. I'm sure it's not something that's prohibitive, but um, something to bear in mind. How do they get around that then, Dave? Well, at the moment, they're basically just putting a net to stop the fish at each end, and they actually have to clean up the fresh water, which is another big problem, because if it's too dirty, then it bungs up the pores in the osmosis membrane. Right, OK. And and the effluent that comes out, the the slightly less salty salt water, that just goes back in the sea, because that's presumably no different than if you have a river discharging into the sea or an estuary or something. Yeah, it's exactly the same as sort of salt water mixed with fresh water, which is what it is. Sounds amazing, though. And it means you can have hydro energy 
derived from water, but in, you don't need a huge great mountain and, and gravity to do it. You can do it using the power of, of the, the, the chemical difference between salt and fresh water. Yeah, it's just generating a little bit more energy out of high, from the river, basically. Yeah. Thank you, Dave. Well, also this week, scientists have discovered a new way to flush out the genes that bugs use to invade and infect our cells. Uh, this is a paper in the journal Science. It's by Jan Curret and his colleagues. Uh, they're based at the Whitehead Institute on the east coast of the US. And they have developed this strategy using a group of cells called KBM7 cells. Now, these are a special cell line which only have one copy of each of the cell's chromosomes in them, unlike the usual two copies. Now, that's critical, and I'll explain why in just a second. But what their strategy involves is they grow these cells in a dish, they then infect them with a virus which goes into the cells and inserts itself inside a number of genes randomly throughout the genomes of these cells and in the process inactivates whichever gene it inserts itself into. The virus also contains a short piece of genetic material like a flag or a tag to earmark where in the genetic material it's gone in. Then what they do is they challenge those cells with a pathogen. It could be a fungus, it could be E. coli, it could be another virus. And what they're able to do is to then see which cells remain viable and are not killed by the pathogen. What presumably has happened is that the virus that they infected the cell with in the first instance must have deactivated some of the genes in that cell which are necessary for that pathogen that they're testing to infect and damage the cell. So all they have to do is to look in those cells to see where the virus has gone in and which genes it's turned off. And once they've identified those genes, they can work out what those genes do and therefore how those genes help the pathogen to invade the cell. So, for instance, it might be a gene that makes a chemical on the surface of the cell that helps a virus to get in. And this is a really neat way to show very quickly which genes and which gene products make our cells vulnerable to different pathogens. And if we know what the genes and the gene products are, we can potentially make drugs or molecules that can block those particular molecules, or at least the interactions that pathogens have with those molecules, in order to damage cells. And the reason that the cells have to have just one copy of each of their chromosomes is that this means that there's only one copy of each of the genes in the cell. So if you had two copies of the chromosome, you'd have no chance of that initial virus being able to turn off both copies. Uh, whereas if you have only one copy, there's a good chance that it will turn off a gene and then you know exactly which one is involved. Sounds like good news indeed to speed up our approach to new ways of treating all sorts of diseases. Well, I'm going to take things back to the ocean once more. You might imagine that. No surprise at all. And the peculiar shape of hammerhead sharks, which I have to admit are, I always say this, but it is really one of my most favourite species. They're so strange to look at. And in fact, their morphology, their anatomy, has been a huge biological conundrum that's been puzzling scientists for years and years, um, really wondering why they have these strange-shaped heads. You know, they're nothing like anything else in the sea. Well, now American scientists have uncovered some of the secrets of these odd hammer-shaped heads, and they've shown that having eyes spaced far apart on their wide heads lets hammerhead sharks see much better than more conventionally shaped sharks. And in particular, hammerheads have an enhanced depth perception, and that's a really crucial skill for predators to judge 
gauge how far away prey is before swooping in for the kill. Well, over, year, over the years, there have been various ideas put forward about what, uh, why the hammerheads have those extraordinary compressed and laterally expanded heads. It's known as a kephalofoil, which I think is a great word. There's your word for the day. Um, and there's, the possibilities include greater sensitivity to smells or to the weak electrical signals given off by prey animals, um, maybe greater lift and manoeuvrability in the water, um, or it might help them uh, in catching and manipulating prey. But until now, very few studies have actually gone about testing all these various hypotheses for why hammerheads have those strange heads. Well, the research team led by Michelle McComb from Atlantic Florida University have set out to test another idea. And that has it's one that's really sparked a lot of controversy over the years, which is whether or not hammerhead sharks can see better than normal sharks. Now, what they did was they mapped out the 3D visual fields of various shark species, including three hammerheads, the bonnethead, scalloped and winghead hammerhead sharks. And the, what they did was they anaesthetised each of the sharks in turn. And then they used an electrode and worked to work out if an electrical signal is generated in the retina when a narrow beam of light is shined on the eye from a various range of angles. And by that way, you can um, build up this sort of three-dimensional field. And uh, what they found was that all of the sharks um, of, all, of all the sharks, it was the hammerheads that had most overlap in their vision from their front two eyes in front of them. And uh, the sharks with the wider heads, the hammerheads that were even bigger, had even more overlap. And it's that overlap that gives you a greater ability to, to perceive depth and to figure out how far things are away from you. The team also discovered a fantastic thing, which is that all these sharks have extraordinary 360-degree vision in the vertical plane, so they can essentially see right above their heads and also down below them. But one thing the hammerheads aren't very good at, and I thought this was rather sweet, was they can't really see what's going on behind them, because as you can imagine, their eyes are kind of facing forwards on the end of these huge heads. And uh, there are reports of prey fish hanging around behind hammerheads, hoping not to be seen. Um, but um, there's a behavioural way that hammerheads seem to overcome this, and what McComb and their colleagues have done is they've looked at videos of sharks swimming, and the hammerheads um, basically swing their heads around a lot more, um, and it seems that that sort of compensates for this compromised vision behind them. Um, but uh, this is really wonderful but of course it doesn't it doesn't rule out other things that might be good about having a hammerhead shaped head hammer shaped head um but it does certainly begin to unveil one of these fantastic secrets of these amazing animals and why they evolved to look so strange Glad I didn't have to anaesthetise a shark, what some people are doing in the name of science. Thank you, Helen. Now, also in the news this week, uh, we hear often that people can move you by the words that they use. Well, it turns out that that's actually physically true as well. Uh, Brian Jick is a researcher at the University of British Columbia and has published a paper this week showing that actually we respond to the sensation of the breath of a speaker on our skin, which helps to reinforce meaning. He's with us now. Hello, Brian. Hi. Welcome to The Naked Scientist. Do tell us, what have you been doing? Uh, well, we've just been uh, aiming puffs of air at people, basically, uh, and seeing how that affects their speech perception. So talk us through the experiment. What did you actually do? Well, initially, we thought that we know that there are certain uh, certain kinds of information that we can pick up in our environment that help us to perceive speech. And we haven't had so much insight into how the tactile sense works into this. So in other so, words, we know that we're comfortable with the fact that people lip read, for example, and so they help their comprehension of what someone is saying by following the movements of someone's lips. Exactly. But there's an additional dimension to this, which is the, the air coming out of their mouth. Exactly. So, <clears throat> And we aren't particularly fond of the air approach. Uh, it just happens that the air approach is the best way to get at what kinds of information could somebody be conveying to you 
that you can just sort of passively pick up from your environment. And so, so how did you do this? So we, we thought about these little puffs of air that people produce. When you say a sound like pa, if you put your hand in front of your face, if you're an English speaker, you can hear a little, feel a little puff of air on your hand. And if you say ba, you don't really feel a puff of air. So we took little tiny puffs of air and created artificial ones and, and put them on, at different places on people's bodies. And at the same time, we played sounds that they could hear through headphones. And we found that if you play the sound ba to someone, and at the same time, somewhere on the body, they feel a little gentle puff of air that's inaudible to them, they'll experience the sense of having heard pa. Oh, right. So you can completely throw them off the scent and you can make them think they're hearing a different sound because you're pairing a puff of air which they would normally associate with hearing the per sound. And in fact, you played them a d sound. Uh, you're right. So a B will sound like a P, a D will sound like a T, and so on. And this is this is interesting to us, not just because it throws off your perception, but it suggests, suggests something, I think, bigger, which is that we really seem to take all the information around us from whatever sense modality is available, and we incorporate it into, into percepts of the world. Does it matter where on the person's body you give the puff of air when doing this experiment? It, it doesn't seem to matter. In the Nature paper, we, uh, we looked at puffs of air on the neck and the hand. And in other studies that we haven't published yet, we looked at the ankle, for example. And we get, uh, we get the same effect anywhere. So in other words, the, the brain is pretty clever in that it's integrating information coming in from all over the place to reinforce the information that would be coming in j just from the spoken language. Exactly. And it, it, it sort of challenges this traditional idea that you see with your eyes and that gets processed by a particular part of your brain and you hear with your ears and that gets processed by another part of your brain. It looks like our brains just perceive things and take everything in. And obviously people who talk on the radio or listen to a podcast, TV programs, they have no problem interpreting what people are saying. So when would the body want to use this additional dimension of comprehension? Well, I think we're... <laughs> The way I view it anyway is we're, we're biological parts of our environment and we, like everything, like the, the plants uh, without chlorophyll, uh, we, we use whatever we've got uh, to, to get by. And in, in our particular case, if we happen to only have one sense modality available to us, we'll get by. If, we, if however, we've got uh, all of our senses and they can pick up information from our environment, We'll use it all, and we'll do it seamlessly. So I guess that puts a whole new spin on the meaning breathing down someone's neck, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> Brian, thank you very much. That's Dr Brian Jick, who's a researcher at the University of British Columbia, paper in Nature this week explaining how puffs of air can actually distort a perception of what people are saying. Read the references and find out the facts. All our programmes are archived in text and audio on our website at nakedscientists.com. And now we join Sarah Castor-Perry for a look back in time to this week in science history. This week in science history saw on the 28th of November 1660 the first meeting of the Royal Society, the oldest continuously running academy for sciences in the world. The beginnings of the Royal Society lie in the 1640s when an invisible college of thinkers and philosophers began meeting to discuss natural philosophy of the day. On the 28th of November 1660, 12 of them, including Christopher Wren, Robert Boyle and Sir Robert Moray, held their first official meeting at Gresham College in London. 
after several changes of home over the years, including an emergency move after the Great Fire of London in 1666, the Society is now based at Carlton House Terrace in central London. The first use of the name the Royal Society came in 1661, and the Second Royal Charter of 1663 refers to it as the Royal Society of London for Improving Natural Knowledge. King Charles II himself expressed a wish to become a Fellow of the Society. A shift in the selection process for Fellows came in 1847, when it was decided that Fellows would be elected purely on the basis of their scientific prowess and body of work, whereas before, wealthy enthusiasts who weren't necessarily scientists were allowed to become Fellows in the hope that they would become patrons of other members. Fellows of the Royal Society over the years have included some of the most famous scientists in the world, like Sir Isaac Newton, Charles Darwin, Ernest Rutherford, Albert Einstein, Francis Crick and James Watson, and Stephen Hawking. Since 1661, the Society has been publishing books and academic journals, with Proceedings of the Royal Society being one of the most prestigious journals to be published in. Series A covers physics, maths and engineering, and Series B covers biology. It also publishes several other journals, including Philosophical Transactions, which has been in print since 1665, making it the longest-running scientific journal in the world. The Society also acts as an impartial advisor on science to policymakers, and despite advising the UK government on current scientific issues that today include things like GM foods and low-carbon energy sources, it's independent from the government. The Society's motto, given in 1663, is nullius in verba, which roughly translates as take no one's word for it, expressing the Society's belief in the importance of empirical, experimental proof and an unwillingness to bow to external authority. Since 2005, the astrophysicist Lord Martin Rees has been President of the Society. He's also the Astronomer Royal and Master of Trinity College, Cambridge. In 2010, the Society will celebrate its 350th anniversary and there will be events across the UK to get people involved in science, including a huge science festival on the South Bank in London. During those last 350 years, the Royal Society has been celebrating important and visionary scientists, supporting emerging talent and inspiring children about science and maths. Its history is closely linked with the history of science as a whole, and hopefully we can look forward to at least another 350 years of successful patronage, education and inspiration. That was Sarah Castor-Perry looking back to this week in 1660 and the first meeting of the Royal Society. And that's all we have for this Naked Scientist Newsflash, which was produced by me, Ben Valsler, and featured Helen Scales, Dave Ansell, Chris Smith, Sarah Castor-Perry and our guest, Dr Brian Jix from the University of British Columbia. You can read all about these stories and more on our website at thenakedscientist.com where you can also find all of our other podcasts. We'll be back with another roundup of science news very soon. The Naked Scientist News Flash, reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.